Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current events in the world of science. In addition, we'll be talking with Dr. Shoshana Zuboff and Dr. James Maxman about their new book, The Support Economy. Also, we'll find out how a golf ball flies. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Berkeley Grocks. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Frank Ling. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Well, guess what? What? I saw God. You saw God? Yeah, this morning. Oh, as the sun was coming up, it was just so beautiful. It had to be God. Those are those are pretty amazing, and you don't get that too often. No. Um, okay, well, some interesting stuff, since we are here in the newsroom of science. You mean we're not at the Super Bowl uh, press platform? <laughs> no, we're not at the Super Bowl press platform, but I do need to say that that was one horrible loss. Oh, man. Oakland Raiders. I heard that there was a riot in Oakland. I, I personally was thinking about it. So but you know what? If they, if they won, there would also be a riot, too, I think. I, I'm pretty sure either way it would have been a riot. Either way, I probably could have gotten free television somewhere, but I did not take advantage of such an opportunity. Or replace them for your car. Right. Oh, by the way, yes, the person who has hit my car is still out there on the loose, and if anybody sees him, tell him he's a baddie. Okay, so uh, it turns out that in science, uh, as we like to point out on this show, sex is on the move. It's on the move? It is on the move. Well, science is sexy, right? It, it is always sexy, and we cannot stress that enough. Science is very sexy, especially when it involves limestone moss. Limestone moss? Yes, limestone moss, which apparently lives on exclusively this particular kind of moss called Zygodon gracilis. It lives exclusively on ancient limestone walls in northern England. So you're supposed to get naked and take a bath with it or something? Almost, but apparently the moss can be seduced much quicker than that. It, it apparently hadn't been uh, observed to reproduce in all, almost 100 years, but the conditions for getting these two mosses to reproduce have now been discovered, while well, certain temperatures, distance from one another, and whatnot. And this is a big problem because this particular moss was on the decline, and England, and as part of its uh, biodiversity program, wanted to uh, help revive this particular moss. And now they know how. It's by talk about desperate. A <laughs> hundred years? You know, they're busy improving the sex lives of moss. <laughs> what could these guys do for me? I'm wondering. Uh, but if anyone's interested in this great article, it's in the uh, recent issue of Science. So, Charles, has your computer been slammed yet? Has my computer been slammed? Uh, oh, I know your car has. Well, uh, my computer might have been slammed uh, if I knew what that meant. Actually, there's a, there's a virus going around called a slammer, and it affects computers that run the SQL server, which is in a lot of computers, and it takes advantage of one of their uh, defects. So it's actually one of the worst viruses that came out since uh, Code Red that came out a year or two ago. So what, what can people do to prevent against uh, being slammed? So basically, you can get the patch from Microsoft, where quality is job 1.1, I guess. <laughs> Isn't it always? 
and um, upgrade your server if you install it. So the way it works is you have this virus, and if your computer is infected, it'll basically send random packets throughout the globe until it finds another server, and from there, continue the infection. It kind of goes exponentially, I guess. Right, as, as most viruses do. Right. So uh, where can they download this patch or upgrade uh, the server? Microsoft has the patch for that, but it's been pretty bad since it's actually slowed down the internet, internet quite a lot, and actually ATMs as well. Oh, so that's what it was. <laughs> oh, actually, I, I just I realized, like... I just realized that I couldn't get cash from Washington Mutual today, ah. either from the uh, the student store or at the uh, at the bank itself. All the ATMs were just completely out, so maybe something was running around. All right. If you want to find out more about that. Uh, there's a recent article on The New Scientist. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Professor Shoshana Zuboff and Dr. James Maxman will join us to discuss their new book, The Support Economy. So stay tuned. Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, today's capitalism is in crisis. The abuses at WorldCom, Enron, and others are further evidence that the current model of doing business, invented nearly a century ago for different people with different needs, is now obsolete. The exhaustion of today's capitalism has driven many top managers to create the appearance of revenues where none existed and punishing a few bad apples will not resolve the underlying crisis. Instead, the answer apparently lies in the emergence of a new kind of capitalism. Well, join us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss their ideas for this new kind of capitalism are Dr. Shoshana Zuboff and Dr. James Maxman, authors of the new book, The Support Economy, Why Corporations Are Failing Individuals, and the next episode of Capitalism. Professor Zuboff is the critically acclaimed author of the classic work In the Age of the Smart Machine, and she's a chair professor at the Harvard Business School. Dr. James Maxman has been the CEO of numerous companies, including Global UK, and has founded the investment company Global Brand Development and is currently the advisory director to Mast Global. Professor Zuboff, Dr. Maxman, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Oh, thanks for having us, Charles. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, you've written a very fascinating new book, The uh, Support Economy, and I'm just curious, what are your ideas uh, behind why uh, the current model of uh, managerial capitalism, as you put it, is failing? I think you have to look far and wide to find anybody who's really happy with their experience as a consumer, let alone with their experience as an employee. We're living in a period of history when society, people, individuals have changed 
so much more than the organizations that we are all required to depend upon for our consumption and for our employment. People have changed more than these organizations, and there is a growing chasm between the two. And the reason for this chasm is that our organizations continue to operate according to an economic logic and a social logic that essentially was invented early in the 20th century. It was invented with the rise of industry. It was invented as a way to oversee the large, new, complex organizations that were producing and distributing goods to a new mass market, a new mass consumer. And at that time, it was very necessary to figure out how to have strict internal controls, how to have a, a group that was professionally trained to oversee all of this complexity in a very disciplined command and control fashion. And that group is, of course, uh, the group of people that we have come to think of as management. And that's why this most recent phase of capitalism is known as managerial capitalism. And managerial capitalism, as we all know, worked very well throughout most of the 20th century in the sense that it was able to realize a lot of economic value. It was able to create a lot of wealth. And because we live in a democratic society, much of that wealth was distributed. It created a huge middle class. And in that sense, it was very, very successful. However, what's happened is that that society that managerial capitalism was invented to serve, that was a society based on mass consumption. It was a marketplace in which when people thought about their images of the good life, what they wanted for the good life was more products, more amenities in their lives, whether it was a refrigerator an automobile, the kinds of things that, that they saw as raising their standard of living, electricity, indoor plumbing, the kinds of goods that they could buy to improve their standard of living. That's what drove mass consumption, and that was the challenge for managerial capitalism that it addressed very, very successfully. What we're talking about in the book is that society has moved on. We are no longer a mass society. We are no longer a mass market, and we are no longer mass consumers. The hallmark of, of today's society is what we call a new society of individuals. We literally are living in a society that's first in human history for having a majority of people who are educated, who are informed, who are opinionated, who are traveled, who are experienced, who are connected. We are, in a sense, unlike any group of people that has ever lived in human history. And as a result, each one of us, for all of the differences and all of the diversity among us, each one of us tends to experience ourselves as a unique individual. And the one thing that we have in common that goes beyond all of the diversity is a deep-seated desire for what we call psychological self-determination, translated the desire to take my life in my own hands, to have control over my life, not to be simply a cog in a mass machine, not to simply be an anonymous, uh, an anonymous, faceless transaction in some huge machinery of capitalism. We want to be able to control our lives, to control our time, to have choice, to have flexibility, to preserve our uniqueness, and to figure out how to live our lives on our own terms. And what we've come to understand, Jim and I, is that 
Today's capitalism is profoundly unsuited to address the needs of this new society of individuals. You ask people today, what's your image of the good life? It's not just about more stuff. It's not just about another car in the garage or another refrigerator in the kitchen. It's about how do I have the discretionary time, the control over my life, the self-determination to live my life the way I want to live it. That is our new dream of the good life. And that's what a new capitalism has to be able to address. You're proposing a a new type of capitalism then to uh, support these new needs that people are facing. What type of capitalism will this be and what will it entail? When we talk about this new image of the good life, one of the things that's useful to keep in mind, and it's so easy to forget, is that the system of capitalism that we live under is a system that was invented. And it was invented by particular people at a particular moment in history for a particular purpose. And, you know, capitalism overall has a very long history. It has a, a history of hundreds of years. But within that long history, the particular form of capitalism that is dominant at any one time, that changes. And one of the things that has made capitalism as as robust and as successful an economic system as it has been is the fact that it is so plastic, that it does change, it does renew itself, it does reinvent itself. And so we looked at these different periods in history when capitalism essentially reinvented itself, where we move from one chapter of capitalism, one episode, to another. And what we found there was that a very important factor in that reinvention process was the presence of these new markets where people's image of the good life changed qualitatively and a new kind of commerce had to be created to meet those new demands. At the same time, there has to be the technology available that can be evolved and and developed and applied in ways that can support the new demand. And the third requirement is what we call a new enterprise logic, a new way of connecting people and technology inside a new conception, a new logic of commerce. Managerial capitalism was such an enterprise logic that connected the old mass markets to the old technologies. And today we're talking about the new markets of individuals, the new digital medium representing a vast new technological resource that is well adapted to the complexity of serving individuals. And the third piece we're proposing is a new enterprise logic that we call now distributed capitalism. Distributed capitalism in contrast to managerial capitalism, because now if you're going to be in the business of supporting individuals in their quest for self-determination, it's no longer simply about products and it's no longer simply about services. It's about providing ongoing, authentic relationships of advocacy that establish deep and intimate knowledge between commercial advocate and an individual and consumer. And those relationships become a source of ongoing support, problem-solving advocacy for an enduring amount of time. They may include products, they may include services, but this relationship of support goes beyond those, those simpler factors to, the, to this enduring experience of advocacy. And the reason it has to be distributed is because this is no longer something that can happen inside an organization. Remember, the whole point of management was a profound inward focus. 
And that's one reason why our organizations have remained so insulated and so distant and so indifferent to us and to our changing needs. So what we need now is to bust that whole thing open. And we need to invent forms of commerce that are networked, that are no longer inside an organization, inside a building somewhere, inside a headquarters somewhere, inside a factory somewhere, but that commerce is actually taking place in a networked way that includes the end consumer. We talk about the contrast between individual space and organization space, and we argue that in distributed capitalism, uh, commerce is actually occurring in individual space. It has to be from the point of view of the end consumer, in their space, in their experience. That's where value is going to be lodged, and that's where value is going to be realized, not inside products, inside organizations, behind walls somewhere. We are talking about a new purpose for commerce, which is supporting individuals, as well as a whole new way of operating uh, that's a profound contrast to everything we've ever thought about as far as commercial entities and, and how we do business. I see, I see. I mean, it sounds like almost utopian vision. I'm curious, actually, uh, from Dr. Maxman, in your personal experience working in companies as, as CEO, uh, how much of this gulf between uh, consumers and management have you seen, and how likely do you think this shift to uh, a support uh, distributed-type capitalism, is it likely? That first an excellent question. My entire life of managing large companies and turnarounds has been how do you actually address that gulf? Because in, inside a company, what you're trying to do is just to get it to work. You're trying to get it to deliver its promises 100% of the time. And that's what we call customer satisfaction. And in the course of my business career, there have been tens if not hundreds of customer satisfaction programs, quality programs, all designed to do it, and it doesn't work. And now what I realize in retrospect is it doesn't work because of the grip of managerial capitalism. And even with the new technologies, the digital technologies, the first Internet revolution, what you can see is, is not the fact that it was so radical. It wasn't radical enough. What you had was a technology that had enormous potential to deliver new business models, to deliver levels of support, to deliver value. But in fact, it was, it was used in the same way as old automation. So effectively, what you had was old behavior on a new platform. What we're suggesting is these digital platforms, which are capable of infinite configurability, they, they can serve a market of a million in the same way they can serve a market of one. Combined with this new market of individuals, combined with distributed capitalists, will give you access to new sources of wealth so you'll no longer be focused on cost reduction. Because they're on digital platforms, they'll basically work. The technology itself is binary. It either works or it doesn't work. But to, but to play in this game in the future, it will just work. And it also has the potential, because it's distributed, to take out vast amounts of cost. And we call that infrastructure convergence. And what we're saying is, inside any organization today, any function which is duplicated inside other organizations, logistics, payment, banking, finance, warehousing, all of this will go into large electronic pipes and take probably 25, 30, 35 percent of the cost out of existing organizational structures. And this will make this level of support, this level of service, this level of advocacy available to people all over the world and at every level of income. You'll fundamentally change the way business is done. And it's not that idealistic because in the end, it's actually going to create wealth. But what it's going to do is give access to all levels of the economy all over the world to this. 
And it's, it's an interesting way to address some of the issues of globalization. You know, in a truly digital world, globalization is not an issue because everything is global. It's not about exploitation in one area. So we're hugely optimistic that this technology, the development of the markets, coupled with the new distribution, will not only ignite new wealth, but it'll give people new freedom, a new sense of self-respect and dignity, and a new way to live their lives and get control over their lives. And so, so practically then, what types of industries do you see then popping up in this support economy? First thing to understand is there's no, there'll be no such thing as an industry. There'll be a variety of enterprises that join together to provide you and I with levels of support that we need to run and control our lives. The concept of industrial structures, industrial boundaries are wedded in that organizational narcissism that Shoshana explained, that inward looking. They don't exist other than in people's heads. So what will happen is people will join together in alliances. They will reconfigure the way they make products and offer services. And it will all be done under the guise of support. And support will be offered on the basis of advocacy, where I am your trusted agent, and where when you offer a good service or support, you're 100% accountable for it. So that in navigating this world, I will have people that will actually be responsible for the products and services they offer me. Not today, where you make a car and it doesn't work and you're in conflict, or where people don't stand behind the products and services they sell. In- indeed, indeed. <laughs> Can that's I... the inversion, right? That's the that's fundamental inversion. I see. Can I say one more comment about sure. the notion of idealistic? Because um, I, I think it's really important that, that you had that reaction. Wow, it, it sounds great. Is it idealistic? And one thing that it's interesting to remember is that 1910, for example, automobiles were a, a rare luxury item. They were very beautiful. They were very complex. They were like works of art. And they were made exclusively for the very, very wealthy. And it was then that Henry Ford came along. Um, Henry Ford was a you know, not very nice character in many, many respects, but he did have some outstanding qualities. One is that he saw into the then changing nature of that society in a way that no one else did. And Henry Ford said, you know, I think that ordinary people, people who are shopkeepers, people who are farmers, actually want automobiles. And the only deal is how do we make it cheap enough so that they can afford it. And everyone told him he was crazy. Everyone called him an idealist. The idea of of an automobile as a mass market item was the most outlandish, idealistic idea that anyone could have had. So if if you had a group of very intelligent, educated people sitting around a table back then, about 100 years ago, and you said, you know, 63% of households are going to have automobiles and 99% are going to have indoor plumbing and electricity. And people are going to go to college and, and all of these other things that have happened in the 20th century. It would have seemed incredibly idealistic. It would have seemed perhaps even foolish. And yet all those things were accomplished. Think about the example of airplanes in the 50s where it was for the wealthy. And then think about Southwest Airlines today. And and why should it be idealistic that you should be treated with dignity and that somebody should be 100% accountable for what they sell? And why can't I give up some of my cost structure in order to give it back to the consumer? And why is it idealistic that, as an employee, I treat consumers in the same way I want to be treated myself, whereas today I come into work, I treat you as as a consumer in ways I never want to be treated myself. Mm -hmm. Why can't you unite those? And what's so idealistic about it? It just makes common, pragmatic business sense. And it's certainly a better 
carry on the way we're carrying on today. I, I would certainly agree. I, I think you both tapped into a, a fundamental uh, issue, I guess, with today's economy. I'm just curious, since we're running a little bit out of time, what do you feel both will have to happen in order for this uh, type of inversion uh, to occur? I think the important thing here is we're not talking about an organizational change program. We're not talking about another business fad. In fact, our book goes entirely against the grain. If you look at the book, there are chapters and section heads that read by saying, you know, organizations do not transform themselves. Organizations do not change themselves fundamentally from within. When there is fundamental change of the nature we're talking about, that happens because of pressure from the outside that creates new competitive opportunities. And it's the entrepreneurs and the visionaries and the mavericks and the people who everyone says is crazy the way they said Henry Ford was crazy who perceive that new opening. And they're the ones who begin to experiment, they begin to take risks, and they begin to piece together the new enterprise logic that is going to ignite this whole new underlying set of conditions and help propel us into the next episode of capitalism. And it takes a whole lot of social engagement, of, of social conversation, of dialogue, of, of engagement from all kinds of groups to finally allow this to take root and to diffuse. You can't think of it like an organizational change program, but you can think of it like a social movement where it takes groups from all across society, consumers, employees, entrepreneurs, the venture capitalists, uh, lawmakers, uh, financial people, all these groups are going to see in this new model enormous upside and enormous opportunity for all different reasons. And it's the coming together of all these different points of view that makes a new episode of capitalism really, you know, take off and take root. There's a great story about the drunk, and he's crawling around underneath the light of the lamppost. And the policeman comes up to him and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for my keys. And then the policeman says, well, did you lose them here? And he said, no, but it's the only place where there's light. And the answer to this is we've got to get out from underneath the lamppost and begin to explore the areas that aren't lit up. And that's an exploration that, that everybody should participate to. And we have one line, you know, the capitalism, the renewal of capitalism is too important to be left just to the capitalists. And on a selfish basis, what we'd like you to do is read the book and give us as much input and comment on the website as you can, because this is a conversation that's just beginning, not ending. And your website is, uh, for our listeners? The website is www.thesupporteconomy, all one word, dot com. Okay. Very all comments welcome. <laughs> Very good. Well, we're definitely out of time, but uh, I just want to mention that you both will be in uh, San Francisco tonight, uh, the 29th, and tomorrow. Uh, would you like to talk about where you're talking? And Yes. Thanks, Charles. Tonight we're going to be speaking at an event sponsored by the World Affairs Council, and that begins at 6 o'clock. It's at Levi Strauss Plaza in their conference facility, which is at 1155 Battery Street, and uh, we would love to see your listeners there to, to join in the discussion. For anyone who can't make that but might be in the Palo Alto area um, tomorrow night, Thursday night, we are going to be speaking again at 6 o'clock. It's another event sponsored by the World Affairs Council. It's at Hewlett Packard, which is 3000 Hanover Street in Palo Alto, and we would love to see you there. 
I hope our, our listeners will certainly uh, join you for a, a very uh, fascinating discussion. Well, uh, I'd just like to thank both of you, uh, Dr. Zuboff, Dr. Maxman, for uh, joining us today on Berkeley Grogs. Thank you. Thank you. You were just listening to Professor Shoshana Zuboff and Dr. James Maxman, authors of The Support Economy, Why Corporations Are Failing Individuals, and the next episode of Capitalism. You're listening to Berkeley Grogs only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, you can find out just exactly what makes a golf ball fly. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, and now here's the crazy Scotsman with the answer to last week's question of the week. Oh, thank you very much there, Frank. So, you want to know exactly how a Scots got the golf balls to fly so great? Well, it's quite simple, lad. It's those little dimples on the golf ball. You see, the dimples create non-laminar flow over the golf ball, creating lift. If it had more laminar flow, it's not going to lift so great. But that turbulent flow causes it to go through the air with much smoother greatness. And that's how the golf ball gets its distance. Well, thanks a lot, Crazy Scotsman. And now here's the question of the week for this week, which is, what kind of galaxies are out there? If you know the answer, just think you know the answer, email us here at grox at hotmail.com. You won't want anything, but the stars might just smile at you. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us here at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, The Boy Wonder. 